Okay, welcome back. Hope you had a pleasant lunch. Kind of remarkable to actually have some warm weather. I thought it had been banned from the Bay Area. Maybe it just seems warm because it's been so cold. Well, it might be warm in here too. And um, I actually uh, told Kathy that I don't want her to use the air conditioning today. Um, Because first of all, um, if it's $10,000 a month for the water, Who knows how much the air conditioning is. <laughs> but um, practicing with a little bit of physical discomfort, nothing heavy, not masochism, but a little bit, can be helpful. Um, because essentially it's just it's creating just a little tension. And since this practice is so much about letting go, and about confronting our own limitations or our own challenges, to kind of intentionally put slight challenges there is one way of kind of expanding your practice or expanding what is comfortable for you. Um, My early practice a lot of the time was spent in the Southern California high desert. And um, there were some retreats where I'd just be sitting and sweating. And the good thing about that was that it really got me in my body. You know? <laughs> I could really feel my body. It just really felt very present. And so I hope you don't mind. I'm not, I'm not trying to mess with you or anything. <laughs> um, so what I uh, plan this afternoon is that I'm going to talk a bit about the second noble truth, maybe the third noble truth, and then, then we'll have a sitting and uh, maybe a little stretch break in there, and then probably some interactive exercises and um, onward <laughs> uh, from there. I don't like to plan too far in advance, but... Uh, so I'm not going to ask you to... Uh, maintain silence, except for that during the sitting periods, of course. And I, you know, typically I like after lunch to to sit again, but um, I am also aware of how uh, immediately after eating, if we come into the meditation hall and close our eyes, oftentimes the mind also closes down and the body nods off. So So I'm going to uh, as I said, I talked a little bit, a bit about the second noble truth, which is the cause of suffering. This is, for me, this is kind of the brilliant insight and counterintuitive flash that the Buddha had. Um, you know, if the, if the four noble truths are like a four-act play, the first noble truth is setting up the situation. And then the second noble truth is the twist. And and, because it's surprising when he says that, you know, we think, well, what's the cause of suffering? Well, it's all this stuff, you know, 
because I can't get anything right. Things aren't, you know, I keep being uncomfortable and I have all these thoughts and these emotions and, and I don't have enough money, you know. I mean, if I just had everything, if I could just get everything in line, then I wouldn't have these problems. And, you know, the Buddha just kind of slaps you across the face. No, you have it like backwards. Turn around. It's the craving. It's the thinking that it's not right. That's the problem. It's the thinking that I need all those things to be right. It's the desire to have all that stuff be just that way. That's the problem. Wow. What, you know, how, how kind of out of the blue that, that insight comes to me. Uh, maybe it's obvious to others. Um, so it's this, uh, our, our cravings in the, in the many forms they take, each, each feeling of desire has this subtext which says, if you take care of this, if you will just satisfy this craving, then you'll be okay. Really, I'll leave you alone. <laughs> Trust me. Well, this is why, you know, this is called Mara, the tempter. Lead us not into temptation. Um, and it's, it makes sense, so it's logical. Of course, there's some lack. I should fill the lack, fulfill this, this need. But what the brilliance of the Buddha is seeing that no matter what you get, it's going to change. And so that any sense of satisfaction, because this, the satisfaction, that word implies a, a finality or a stasis. You've arrived, you're done. Any possibility of arriving or being done is blown out of the water when you realize that everything is constantly changing. You have lunch, you're satisfied until you're hungry again. <laughs> you have dinner, you're satisfied until you're tired and you want to go to bed. It's just, these things just come continuously. I mean, you could, you could track your day by the arising of desire and the effort to eradicate it, the arising of the next desire. So the, the uh, feeling, this subtext that you're going to be satisfied is delusion. This is a delusion that our minds create. And when we see that we can't arrive somewhere, then we, what we want to do is start to confront the desire itself. So this is, again, one of the elements of practice. One of the core elements of practice is to watch desire appear and then to let it go. When you come back to your breath, essentially all you're doing is letting go of some desire. And each time you do that, you're undermining that habit. The, the way karma works, the law of karma, the law of cause and effect, is that the more you do something, 
the more you reinforce the tendency to do that. The less you do something, the more you undermine the tendency to do that. So the more you act on desire, guess what? The more desires you have. Sound familiar? One drink is too much, thousand isn't enough. The more you drink, the more you want. The more you take drugs, the more you eat. The, whatever your addiction is, is there ever enough sex? You know, it's just, it's never enough, right? I mean, I, you know, I love the, you know, the image of, you know, after sex, a cigarette. Because, <laughs> oh, well, sex wasn't enough, you know. <laughs> now I need some more pleasure. You know. For those of you who remember sex, I <laughs> the aging of the Sangha. <laughs> okay. Just watch an old French movie, you'll get it back. So this, you know, the more we act on desire, the more it's going to be just fed. So we act on desire less, and then there's less desire doesn't come up as much. Again, very counterintuitive. You think, well, if I, the less I do something, the more I'm going to want to do it. But no, it doesn't quite work like that. And it's very interesting that, uh, uh, you know, the, the monastics, they only eat uh, usually one meal a day, or they, all they're eating is before noon. And I've been on, I guess, just one monastic retreat. That was, that was good. Uh, <laughs> um, but I was a little intimidated. Oh, we're not going to eat afternoon, you know. And I had tried to do that on a retreat that wasn't a monastic retreat where some people were still eating. And so, I, and it just was really hard. I went on this monastic retreat and I, you know, I took along my little emergency supply of food because that's how I am. Fear dominates. You know, after the, the first day, I mean, the first day I had... Like late in the afternoon, I had like a cough drop. That was it. I mean, I never, I wasn't hungry anymore afternoon. And it was just kind of, you're not, there's no meal served. And you just kind of, you're not acting on desire. You're not thinking about it. You're not planning. It's just not built in. And it's amazing. It just fell away. This is, I think, one of the reasons why the Buddha set up the the monastic rules in this way, just to discourage desire, set up fewer sensual pleasures, fewer things to to crave. Um, So we, as we, the less we do, the less less we act on desire, the less desire there is, to some extent. I mean, obviously there's times when the desire is just going to arise because of the conditioning, of our li- a lifetime's conditioning. But certainly many people who, who stop drinking and using find the same thing, that it's not like, you know, they're craving drinking. And when you think about when you were in your addiction, it felt like you had to do this like every day or regularly, right? that, it, that the craving that would come up was just compelling and it, it had to be acted on. And isn't it sort of miraculous that you could stop and then it wouldn't come back? I mean, I, I, just out of curiosity, how many people here have, like, don't experience regular cravings for their drug of choice on a regular basis? Right. 
that's a great majority of the people here. The rest of you, I hope, are newcomers. But um, I know that for some people, that's not true. And I have a good friend who's been sober, I guess she's a year ahead of me, so 27 years now, who says that she still gets cravings. And that, that's just, you know, that's, that's true for some people. But for many of us, just stopping, the craving goes away. I mean, that, you got to think about that, you know. Sort of doesn't make sense, but it does in this model, this karmic model. Um, so getting back to, as we're sitting in practice, the, the, another way that I think that meditation practice has this, is playing a trick on us, it, or, or is doing things that we don't exactly see, is that when you just sit down and close your eyes and decide, I'm going to sit here for you know, 10 minutes, and you close your eyes, no matter what happens, you don't act on the desire. So any desire that comes up <coughs> is diffused. You've let go of it. So right there in that 10 minutes, you have done a certain amount of chipping away at the karma of craving. You've weakened craving in yourself. Now, you will notice that when you do this, sometimes your head starts to go crazy. And if you come on a retreat, as I know some of you have, go on a silent retreat, and particularly the beginning of the retreat, the mind is just creating all these stories and worries and plans and it just, it's kind of out of control. And what it's kind of doing, I think, is trying to make up for the fact that you're not acting on any craving. So it's creating all these mental cravings. Um, but after a while, as you keep coming back to the breath, because each time you come back to the breath, you're letting go of craving, then uh, it just undermines that. And after a few days of sitting, you can really settle into an amazing place of spaciousness and calm. And uh, really... Um, Reduced desire. Now, there can arise when we start to study this or think about this, this idea that, oh, well, since we're letting go of desire, what we're supposed to do, if we're really good meditators, is not have any desires. And that's typical alcoholic thinking basically. Take it to the extreme. Now, yeah, sure, in the text it says that, you know, free from desire. And it says that when you're enlightened, then there isn't craving, all that. But I'm not sure about all that. Uh, I I will say that at least uh, they're partly kind of talking about certain types of desire. So one of the things I want to talk about is the types of the desire the Buddha is talking about here. But, but to complete this thought, we have to be very careful that we don't get into this perfectionism in meditation practice. We can bring that same kind of perfectionism that we bring to our disease or our addiction or whatever that personality trait is for addicts that, that wants every, to control everything. We come into meditation, we want to control our meditation. Oh, how, how do I do this? You know, so often, many of the questions I get about meditation are really about how can I control this? Oh, I'm falling asleep. What should I do? Oh, if I'm having pain, what can I do? How do I stay with my... How do I let go of these thoughts? How do I get rid of these thoughts? 
all about control. Right? Coming in and meditating is really about letting go of control. And that's what's scary about it. But you're, only, you're not letting go of that much control. And in fact, just as it says, I th- I'm, thinking, I'm thinking there's something in the 12-step literature about this, but I'm not hearing exactly in my mind what it is, so I might be making that up. That, uh, it, well, oh, uh, it, it's, um, it's the um, St. Francis prayer. It's by, by um, dying that we're awakened to the, anybody? Eternal life. Eternal life, right. It's that, that by uh, letting go of control is how we actually gain larger control. Uh, It's turning your will and your life over to a higher power, but you, it's, the higher power is not actually something out there. It's actually the power of the Dharma, the power of mindfulness, the power of compassion, those powers that are not personal powers, that don't belong to you, but nonetheless are part of you and which you can cultivate and, um, and operate from. That's not too an image. This is my afternoon tea. I, I don't drink caffeine in the morning, but I've taken up afternoon caffeine. So um, sometimes I get excited when I have my, my afternoon tea. So. Helps me get around the 18 holes, though, so it's... Now let me talk about the, the forms of desire that the Buddha talked about, because this is an important distinction to make as well. It's not that he, uh, uh, you know, when we translate the, the literature, uh, it can, it, we can get into these very narrow understandings of what's being said. Um, it's not so much the Buddha said the cause of suffering is desire, um, but he's really talking about certain types of desire. And he used the word tanha, which the literal translation of that is thirst, which is sort of ironic. But he said the cause of suffering was thirst. And most Dharma teachers will just brush past that one quickly. Uh, but we can just say that that's it, yeah. We've arrived. Um, but, but he talks about three types of desire. The desire for sensual pleasure. Um, which is pretty evident uh, that that relationship to addiction and and it's pretty evident the unsatisfactoriness of that that how that really is not a a way to achieve happiness by satisfying sensual desires um, you know uh, as you're aging you certainly see that but uh, just eating too much popcorn is a way to see that. that there's just sort of no, uh, I guess that's from going to the movies last night, but that, that uh, there's no um, pleasure that's going to resolve anything. We understand it's, it's temporary. There's nothing wrong with it. And the Buddha doesn't say that we shouldn't have pleasure. This is also a very important point. He, he agrees that there are sensual pleasures. <clears throat> he 
says the problem really isn't, pleasure isn't the problem. It's your attachment to it. It's your craving for pleasure that's the problem. So enjoy, you know, (laughs) enjoy your food. Enjoy whatever pleasures you're having. Don't become attached to them. Don't let them become addictions. Don't let them become, lead to more suffering. But in the present moment, enjoy them. And most of the time, we don't. You know, most of the time, we're hurrying on to the next thing so much that we don't enjoy the present moment pleasure. So enjoy the present moment pleasure, but don't seek after that as, a, as an answer to the, the deeper hungers. So there's the sensual pleasure. And then there's two other forms of desire. The desire is called the desire to be and the desire to not be. Let's take a little bit more elaboration. This is about, largely about ego, the desire to sort of be somebody, to have an identity, to uh, be recognized, to be the center of attention. I can't understand people who want that. It's just beyond me. Um, And further, to this is kind of the life force in a way, the craving to to live forever. It's interesting to me uh, when I was, uh, I guess, in my late teens. Remember, uh, I was my parents had some friends over for cocktails, (coughs) and um, and this was the late '60s, and I think I was speaking in kind of apocalyptic terms about what was going on in the world, which wasn't probably inappropriate at the time. And the, this woman who was a friend of my parents said to me, you know, every generation thinks they're going to be the last one. And that really struck me. Uh, and it stayed with me how each generation has these apocalyptic visions. And this is what I think that's about. We can't imagine the world going on without us. We would rather have the world end. If I have to go, everybody has to go. It really, it, it really is that, that delusion. How can it go on? Well, oh, I know. I think the world's going to come to an end. No, just you. No, of course, we're each going to come to an end. So this craving to be, you know, there's that's tied up with with genetics, with uh, with the craving of the species to continue to reproduce. And you notice Buddhist monks, you know, don't have sex, so they kind of intervene in that too. Although there's plenty of, I mean, the Buddha had a son, so anyway, let's not go there. Um, then the the. the Desire to not be is interesting, one that I've contemplated a bit because it kind of confused me when I first heard it, and I, I won't say that I have an absolute handle on, on its meaning, but uh, there's a few ways to look at it. One is the desire to uh, annihilate consciousness, which is one of the desires that comes with, with addiction. You know, we try to, I mean, going into a blackout. Uh, the heroin addict certainly trying to really die in a sense, just, um, just the desire 
to go to sleep. Oh, if I could just go to sleep. The desire to shut out consciousness. The, the kind of overwhelm of life, it's just too much. I just want to shut down. Um, and the desire for annihilation. So all of these cause us suffering, these forms of sensual desire, uh, mental, emotional uh, craving. So, but it's important to distinguish that, that there are also forms of wanting or uh, motivation that are skillful, that are wise, that are leading to the end of suffering. So the Buddha talks about the desire that leads to suffering, but that, that there's also a desire that leads to the end of suffering, or that le- leads to the end of desire. I mean, why would you come up here today to sit in this chair and just do nothing if you didn't have some desire? And is that uh, a, a destructive, if there's something destructive about that? Um, I don't think so. This is uh, the wise wishes, Buddhadasa calls it. There's, there's foolish desires and wise wishes. So an important piece of our practice, of our mindfulness practice, is to be able to distinguish these things. It's easy for us to delude ourselves into what is a wise wish that might actually be a foolish desire. At the same time, we need to be able to trust our sense of longing for connection or longing for spiritual growth or for change and to say we're going to take this risk or try out this practice. It can lead to suffering. There's no doubt. There's times when this longing for freedom or for awakening to, can step over into, I really want to get enlightened because it's going to solve all my problems. Or, you know, if I could just get, you know, maybe I should just become a monk because then I won't have all this, you know, all these issues to deal with. And, and we can see that, that kind of how even in skillful, uh, when there's a skillful end in mind, we can get caught in an unskillful energy moving toward it. So in Buddhism, the end does not justify the means. The means is is everything. Uh, It's, it's, in fact, the, the means, it's the quality of the means that determines the quality of the ends. So you can't uh, separate the two. Well, that gives us, I think, some of a sense of the second noble truth. So I'd, I'd like to do some sitting. And I'd like to really encourage you then, during this sitting, to notice everything that interferes with your attention to the breath or to the present moment. And notice if there is a quality of desire or craving or attachment in that interference, in that thing that's interfered. So it sort of adds a little piece to your practice. If you haven't already done this kind of practice where you're sitting, following your breath, and then you realize, oh, I'm thinking. So then just for a moment... There's a couple ways to approach this. You can just feel the energetic quality 
that has come from the thought. That's pretty subtle. Or you can just look at what was that thought and notice if there was some desire. And, the, and there can be the opposite of desire, which the flip side, aversion, or just not wanting, which is the same, same thing. It's just all one, one type of energy, wanting or not wanting, just moving two different directions. Just notice, you, so you can either notice the content of it, oh, that's what I was thinking about. Wow, really? Okay, that's, that was a desire. Or you can just notice, how does that feel? Ooh, sheesh, oh, that kind of yuck. Okay? So let's sit. And I'll, I'll give a little guidance just to get us settled. And then, um, then I'll quiet down. Oh, beginning by connecting with your body, with your posture, with any obvious tension or strong sensations. Relaxing. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.